The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15.4 that whatever written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the Spirit we might have hope. He says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 10 after recording several of the failures of Old Testament Israel. They're dabbling with idolatry and uh, that these things were written down as an example to do instruct us, to help the church in all ages to learn from our forefathers. And, well, as we come to this passage, we find Moses opening up his many sermons that he's preaching to uh, the, the children of the Exodus generation. These are now the grown adults who are about ready to enter into the promised land. And um, their parents, the Exodus generation, had been guilty guilty of forgetting who God was, failing to act on his sterling reputation for justice, goodness, and mercy. Uh, This God, who had defeated the powerhouse of Egypt, who had provided for them in their wilderness uh, travels to date, and uh, as as Moses is instructing the people of God then, so now that message passes down from generation to generation throughout the ages, and you and I have an opportunity to learn from the faults of our forefathers. And we can see ourselves, even in their sin patterns, of learning to trust God. Trust him, to depend upon him, to believe that he will provide us a hope and a future confident, confidence rooted in the stellar character of our living God. So he and she who has ears to hear, let him hear God's word. I'm not going to read all the passage. I will skip through it a little bit. Uh, But please follow as I direct you to the verses. We begin in Deuteronomy 1, verse 9. Moses, Moses says, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. And may the Lord, the God of our, fa- of our fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. Down to verse 16. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, and you shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw. Skip down to verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession as the Lord, the God of your forefathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they might explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. And you recall how Moses did send out 12 spies to bring back report, and he brought back signs of the fruit of the land and a report of the people and their cities. But then in verse 26, Moses continues, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said, Do you do not be afraid or afraid of them? The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And so verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which... He has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. And then, of course, Moses appoints a successor in Joshua. And it says in verse 39, And as for your little ones, you who said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. And then lastly, last section in verse 41. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord your God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. And so I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. And there the men of Israel were defeated by the Amorites who came out after them like a raging swarm of bees. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, I would once again ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Suppose a daughter has an afternoon activity after school and makes arrangements with her father to pick her up from school at a certain time and place. And uh, the day goes as planned, and the time arrives for her to be picked up, and the girl grows anxious as the time approaches, fearing that her father may have forgotten, so she sends him a text and doesn't receive an answer. And uh, she increasingly begins to fear that he's forgotten, that he's distracted. He may be in a meeting and they perhaps turned his phone off. And as she thinks about it, her heart begins to flood with resentment, uh, feeling like she's been forgotten, that her father doesn't care about her. And then, sure enough, five or ten minutes pass the designated time of pickup, and frantically she begins to call her friends uh, who, ha- who drive, 
And it just so happened that one of her friends was still at school, and so they arranged to pick her up and depart. Uh, but rather than go home first, they stop off at an ice cream place, and there they run into some friends from school. And so by the time the girl gets dropped off at home, it's already past dinner time. And as she approaches the door of her home, she notices several texts that she had missed uh, from her frantic parents wondering where she's been and uh, what she's been doing all this time. And uh, she pieces together the fact that her father had been at the school a few minutes late. He had been in a meeting uh, and ran into some unexpected traffic. And so as uh, the daughter begins to piece this together, she feels guilty. Uh, Not only has she interrupted her father's busy schedule and uh, causing him to to rush out and be fearful for her, but she had assumed that he had forgotten her. Uh, that he, she had even accused him in her heart that he didn't care, which was completely inconsistent with his track record of being a very faithful and loving father. And so this daughter, as she enters the house, is, is tempted to just want to sneak into the house and avoid her parents altogether to avoid uh, the, the shame and uh, the looks of, of disappointment uh, of her irresponsible behavior. But her connection with her parents, her, her memories of their love and care for her help her overcome her fears. So she bravely walks into the family room where they're both seated and receives looks of both relief and exasperation as the parents uh, express frustration over her irresponsible behavior. And then her father's gentle rebuke, mixed with compassion and concern, begins to melt her cold heart, and tears well up in her eyes. She realizes her folly, how she'd made false accusations against him, lacking faith in his character, even resenting him, and proceeds to confess her sin of disrespect. Well, that may be day in the life of the typical home with uh, teenage children, But uh, Moses here is recounting the early history of God's relationship with his people, who were infantile and teenage-like. And in this passage, recounts lots of deep emotions of fear, anxiety, anger, and regrets. And, uh, of course, Israel was culpable of something more serious uh, than uh, teenage absent-mindedness. This was culpable rebellion. That these are a people who failed to trust in the God who had redeemed them, who had set them free from their bondage in Egypt, who had provided for them in the wild a mass of people who had pledged to see them safely through to the promised land, a promise he had made many generations prior to their forefathers. And, you know, you and I know better, and yet we often are no better. But we see ourselves in this our own double-mindedness, our own faith one day and doubt the next, our zeal one day and our cowardly behavior the very next. You and I claim faith in Christ, but we too often allow our own fears and our doubts, our idols, to rule over us. We can too can make God out to be a scoundrel. And so Moses here reminding his people to, to ground Israel in the truth of God's righteous character. You and I need that sermon to imprint upon our own minds and hearts the sterling, reliable of God's justice. 
his goodness and mercy towards those that he loves forever and ever. One of verses 9 through 18, of course, are, is a reference to Exodus 18 and Numbers 11, where Moses follows the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, uh, who observes Moses trying to pass judgment upon all the cases uh, facing his people, and he's wearing himself out. And so uh, Moses proceeds to delegate, to appoint leaders, to raise up judges for the people. This people that had become more numerous than the stars in the heavens. You remember the promise that God had made to Abraham regarding his many descendants. Though he was old and childless, yet in his old age had a son uh, who had more children and then many, many descendants. You know, scientists speculate now that uh, the, the number of stars in our universe are on the order of 10 to, to the 22nd power. Maybe as high as 10 to the 24th power. That, that's up in the octillions for those of you math lovers. Okay, and that, that's just slightly more money than uh, Donald Trump claims to have. Okay, so this, this is a big, big number. And in fact, the scholars tell us that these massive fireballs that make up the universe, in fact, more than 100 million galaxies, there are more stars in the universe then there are grains of sand on the earth. So this great God, this great God of power and knowledge who knows even the hairs of our head is the God who is caring for his people in all ages and in all trials. This God who calls the stars one by one knows you and I intimately and completely. So though Abraham's ascendants did not quite outnumber the stars of the heavens— Nevertheless, they are proven to be quite a burden, uh, in fact, too heavy for Moses to bear alone. And notice the qualities uh, that Moses establishes for qualified men who are qualified to lead Israel. They are to be wise and understanding, experienced men. The NIV uses the word respected, respectable men. And Moses proceeds to charge them uh, as judges to hear cases to make righteous rulings. And notice it also includes aliens. This was not just for ethnic Israel, but all those who were added to their number from the surrounding nations, demonstrating God's care, his blessing, and promise for all nations. Judges were not to be partial. Verse 17 literally means, shall not recognize faces. This means justice and judgment is to offer no preferential treatment based on race, gender, age, kinship relationships. Judges are to hear small cases small and great, to not ignore the poor, nor favor the poor over the wealthy. And so in summary, judges are to fear God, not man, to pass, uh, and, and then when needed, to pass along more difficult cases to those who are higher and uh, more experienced than they. So you may ask, well, what does this do with me? I'm not in leadership. I'm not a justice of the peace. Well, I begin by reminding you that God's intent for his people was to live under righteous rule. Okay, we were not designed or intended to live under tyranny. God rescued his people from cruel oppression, setting them free to be a people who live by faith under his righteous rule. And he granted them the blessings of self-government, the gift of the rule of law, and raise up leaders who could help ensure equity. You know, bullies abuse power. Unjust judges serve for selfish gain. And so God's representatives on earth 
must resist tyranny, must expose injustice, must defend the oppressed, must exercise fairness and justice wherever we have the power and the influence to do, to do so. So whether it's a trivial matter of resolving disputes with your children, or a more serious matter of ex- being ex- serving as an executor for a will, perhaps serving in office, uh, dealing with a discipline case in the church, perhaps mitigating a business dispute uh, in your profession. When you exercise justice, you listen to the all, all parties' concerns. You demonstrate dignity and respect. You demonstrate fairness, not prejudicing, presuming one party against another. And it means being committed to avoiding many of the common flaws that get in the way of justice. Perhaps being dismissive and lazy, ignoring people's claims. Then there's the flaw of being impetuous, uh, of too quickly determining a matter before you have heard it out from all parties. Perhaps also being overbearing, trying to solve people's disputes who need to solve it themselves. That can apply to your family. That can apply to the work environment, to your own home. You know, the Bible calls us to be peacemakers, that, that, that those who make peace will be called sons of God, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter calls us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to represent a just and righteous God before a, a world in peril, a world in deep and desperate conflict with one another and with their God. And remember that Jesus was the most just man that ever walked the face of earth, who confronted evil, who could see through the trappings of the deceptive, who exposed their deceit. And it's Jesus who ultimately satisfied God's justice, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve, absorbing the the righteous wrath of God our Father. And so we honor Christ when we embrace his righteousness and represent his justice to a sin-sick world. Well, secondly, what does it mean to trust God's goodness? Well, in the remainder of our passage, uh, Moses is now recounting uh, the episode where he sent spies uh, into uh, the promised land uh, and sent them upon request of the people. And it wasn't necessarily a sinful response, but the way that people responded to the report was sinful, lacking faith in the Lord their God. Uh, Moses describes in verse 19, the wilderness was great, and terrifying. He, he describes elsewhere the snakes and the scorpions, the, the waterless wasteland uh, that was this, this uh, intermediate period between Egypt and the promised land. And we're reminded that God did not intend his people to dwell uh, in an empty wasteland, but rather to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses exhorts the people to take possession of the land. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. And that word dismayed means shattered. It's a word to describe an army defeated in battle, retreating and scattering. And so it is that we are to go forth unified and boldly to claim the land that is rightfully ours, decreed by God. Well, sadly, the people respond to the reports of the giants and the, and the cities uh, fortified up to heavens by murmuring in their tents. You can just imagine them saying, you know, did you hear the report of the spies? Uh, that they saw the sons of Anakim there. That they're giants in the land. They, these cities rise up to heaven. We'll never beat these guys. We'll never take this land. 
And so the fears of a slavish people grew and grew and grew until their fears overwhelmed their faith. And rather than seeing and remembering the mighty powers and acts of their God, all they could see before them were the things that they feared. They forgot the goodness and power of the God who had delivered them, who had defeated the the mightiest army in the world. But now we're accusing their good God of hating them. Elsewhere, one of the rabble-rousers cries out to Moses, was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? You know, harsh conditions, the the threat of, of battle, uh, reveal the hearts of these Israelite peoples. And so God, in their eyes, was no longer a delivering angel, but a wicked devil. They had turned their God into a Hitler who was offering false promises, shrewdly leading them to their deaths. It was sad. It's sad in the human fallen condition that God can be a great hero and savior to us one day, and an enemy the next. And I believe it's true of human nature throughout the ages that, you know, people hate change. They, they don't like discomfort. They uh, resist being challenged. And so when people are facing conflict, what do they do? They murmur in their tents. They talk about people behind their backs. People praise their leaders as saviors one day and renounce them as devils the next. And we do the same with God. When we are not getting our way, we have to endure a grueling trial. But notice how Moses responds. He offers him for the third time an exhortation to do not dread or be afraid of this enemy people. He reminds him of this God, this God who brought Egypt to its knees, who overthrew Pharaoh's chariots in the Red Sea. This God will fight for them. He will bring justice to the wicked. He will demonstrate his goodness. He will fulfill his promise that he made to their forefathers. He is like a father carrying a little boy on his shoulders through a swollen creek. This is the God who provided a cloud by day and a fire by night, promising to never leave them or forsake them. And yet this generation's parents capitulated in fear, preferring the ruthlessness of Egypt than to face the giants with God on her side. They would rather serve the tyranny of earth than live by faith in the God of heaven. You know, most of us hate our sin and we want freedom, but we find ourselves, we keep going back to it. There's something familiar with it. There's something comforting with it. There's something we can try to manage and control when we want to fight it and resist it one day, but then we find ourselves slinking back into our old ways. And while we could enjoy freedom, we could enjoy freedom and purity and fellowship with our Father, we find ourselves wallowing back in the muck of our sin like swine. So I ask you tonight, what are the giants? What what are the fearful, dreadful things that you're facing that are tempting you and bringing doubts and arousing fears? Is it the giant of health? Of cancer? The prospect of dementia? The the fear of retirement and unreadiness for it? For young people? Those giants are at school with academics, with 
things that we have to compete for in marriage. It's a conflict. It's a spouse with an addiction. It's a child who won't come home. It's the giant of singleness, joblessness, childlessness. There are all kinds of desires and fears that overwhelm us, that tempt us, that that weigh on us, that only God can equip us to face with faith and courage. You know, the pressure and stress of trials in the wild lands tempt us to doubt God's goodness. And so we have a choice when we're tempted to either see God as our loving Heavenly Father or see him as an overbearing ogre, distant and aloof. We need to be reminded that our trials are designed by God to bring us to the end of ourselves, to cleave to him, to hold fast to him, to be humbly dependent upon him in a world that screams uh, self-reliance. We need to remember Jesus who trusted in his Father's goodness in the wildlands. As Satan exploited every opportunity to tempt him like Adam and Eve, trying to seize God's good gifts and to grasp them in a forbidden way, to question God's intent. The enemy uses our trials to tempt us and question God's goodness, to perhaps turn us against him, to accuse him, that he's in fact intending us harm. Focusing on our trials usually leads to self-preservation. But we focus on God in the trial. We learn self-denial and dependence upon him. So what are some keys to surviving and thriving in the wildlands? One is to believe that God intends you good and not harm, that even when those trials emerge. Remember Romans 8, where Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? I need to stand firm on the bedrock truth that God is for me. That God wants me to prevail. God wants me to succeed. That God wants me to thrive and prosper in his sight. And then I need to believe that God is not tired of me. That God is not pacing in heaven in frustration with me. God has not given up on you. He loves you. He delights in you. Do you know the fact that God rejoices over you? And when you're tempted to disbelieve that, when you're tempted to doubt that, we need the gospel to remind us of what is true. In the midst of our trials and our besetting sins, we can repent and come back to him, the God who welcomes and embraces us. Well, as we move on, uh, I'm reminded as we look in this last section of our text that in the Bible, we really don't see God truly angry until he enters into covenant relationship with his people. You know, yeah, God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve. On He sent the flood in Noah's day. He scattered the people at Babel. But you don't find God personally angry until he's reacting to his people's rebellion. Yes, God had forbidden Adam and Eve to reenter the garden, and now he is forbidding this Exodus generation from entering the land of promise, all except two men, Caleb and Joshua. And the text points out to us that Caleb was not even a pure-blooded Israelite. His father was a Kenizzite. So God engrafting in the nations, even as he's building up the forces to enter the promised land. Notice that Moses incriminates the people in his own punishment. 
Moses grieves that he can't enter the promised land, but he will, he will be identified with his people dying on the east side of the Jordan, guilty of his own sin and presumption by striking a rock when God instructed him to speak to it. But we remember God's mercy that Moses would enter that land long afterwards as he appears in the transfiguration of Christ before Peter, James, and John. Yes, Moses will enter the land. Yes, we will enter the land by God's mercy. God is also merciful in raising up a wise, courageous successor to Moses in uh, the leader Joshua. Uh, the God uh, preempts the leadership crisis that will come with Moses' death by raising up a competent man to lead Israel's armies into battle against a very fierce and determined enemy. God also will have mercy on this next generation. Uh, their parents uh, had greatly feared for their children that they would be taken captive and plundered by the, the enemy pagans, and thus implying and accusing God again of not caring for them and their children. But Moses affirms here that these people would inherit the land, and these, these people were too young to have remembered and witnessed God's mighty wonders in Egypt, but they had learned to trust God in the wildlands. It reminds me, it reminds us that trials are not necessarily bad for our children. If they're learning to interpret them and respond to them in a God-directed manner. And so, the men of Israel, as we come to verse 41, Moses recounts how the men of Israel responded to their punishment of wilderness wanderings for 40 years, at first with a, a kind of repentance, they acknowledged their sin, But then rather than submit to their punishment, they choose to go into battle against God's expressed will. Verse 42 says, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated by your enemies. So the men of Israel rebel anyway, presumptuously, it says in verse 43. And of course, predictably, they are defeated and chased away by the Amorites, described as like an angry swarm of bees. And so the defeated men come back, weeping, their tail between their legs, and yet God would not listen to them. So I was thinking about this kind of double-mindedness, this twisted decision-making of the men of Israel. It's it's like a sprinter on the fourth leg of a relay whose prior three runners have given him a great lead, and yet he refuses to take the baton. And then after the the third-leg runner... uh, exhorts him to take the baton and run. By the time he takes it, it's too late. He's already lost the lead and lost the race because of his indecision. It's like in baseball where I'm serving as a third-base coach, and I have a base runner who has an opportunity to score, to steal home on a, on a wild throw or a pass ball, and I, I give him instruction, go ahead and run, you can score. And he hesitates. And I realize the opportunity has passed. And so I say, no, come on back. Come on back. But then he goes anyway. And, of course, by that time, the ball was there, and he gets tagged out and ruins an opportunity for a run and a win. We're double-minded. We hesitate. We, we, we fail to trust God. We fail to trust him and act upon his clear direction. And it's sad in this text how that the men of Israel prefer the terror of men than the mercy of God. Remember when David had sinned greatly by ordering a census of the fighting men of Israel? And God tells him to choose between three punishments. And what does David say? He wants the mercy of God. 
may me and my people fall in the hands of God and not the hands of men. Well, that's not what Israel does. They cast themselves into the hands of men rather than the hands and the mercy of God. They were more terrified of 40 years in the wild with God than the combat giants without God. You know, to, to, to stick with God's people, to stick with God, you know, fellowship with God and his people can be hard because it means we have, we have to battle sin. It means we, we have to deal with ourselves. We have to deal with our agendas bumping into one another. And we dare not face the wildlands apart from the Lord our God. But trust in his mercy. Trust in his goodness to lead us. You know, the men of Israel remind us that, that, that we can sin by obeying just one part of a command and ignoring the other. You know, the sin of presumption, presumption is, is a dangerous sin, assuming that God will just forgive me later. Rather than have a zeal and a conviction, no, I'm going to trust and obey him now and flee from this sin. You know, cheap grace is a dangerous thing. Uh, abusing God's mercy leads us into cynicism in the trappings of sin. So how do we escape it? Well, it begins by trusting God's wisdom rather than punishing ourselves with guilt and regret. God has provided for you in Christ true relief from your sin. God is a God of justice, a God of goodness, and a God of mercy who has more than sufficiently provided everything you need for life and godliness. And so rather than taking matters into your own hand, trying to resolve your own issues, trying to fix all your own problems, like the men of Israel, we were called to trust him and cry out to him and cling to him, believe that he is merciful and just and will forgive us our sins as we submit to him and abide in Christ. Trusting that Christ and his work on the cross pays and atones for our sins rather than us doing it in his place. That we, we yield and we submit and we acknowledge, I need a Savior. That, that I am desperately sick in and of my own flesh and my own will. I believe that embracing and trusting in God's mercy also means we resist the urge to punish others. You know, when people hurt us and they offend us and, and we, we are tempted to murmur and talk about them, you know, believing God's mercy means I'm going to show you mercy. I'm not going to be like the servant who held over his fellow servant's head a small wage when he had been forgiven an enormous amount by the gracious king. That I'm going to forgive as I have been forgiven. I'm going to love as I have, loved, have been loved. I'm going to show mercy because I have been shown mercy. And to fully embrace these attributes of God, we have to remember that we have a Savior who faced the wildlands for us. This parable, that this story of Israel is kind of, it's a foreshadowing of what Christ would endure in 40 days in the wilderness of fasting, of demonstrating the justice, goodness, and mercy of God by squaring off with Satan and by going to the cross where justice and mercy meet by satisfying the righteous requirements of God's law, by meeting the need to satisfy and assuage the wrath of God on sinners, and yet to apply mercy, where grace and mercy triumph over even God's justice with Christ's sacrifice in our place. 
Back in the first week of March, I flew down to Houston uh, to spend a week with my parents to help my mom with, uh, as my dad was recovering from knee replacement surgery. And uh, while there, I actually bought my mom's car. Uh, it was arranged that I'd fly down and I'd drive back. So I had this long 1,500-mile trek uh, across the south uh, in the mid-Atlantic, all the way back here to Lancaster. And, um, you know, th- the first leg, the first day travel was terrible. I had to cross Louisiana where there were wrecks everywhere. Uh, th- there was a stormy, rainy week. There were something like 20 inches of rain across Mississippi that day. I mean, I, I, it took me like 13 or 14 hours to go 600 miles. Okay, so it was a terrible day. But then the next day, it was beautiful and sunny, made great time. Well, it took me 13 hours to go like eight or 900 miles. Don't do the math to figure out how fast I was going. But it, it was, it was a, a beautiful day. But there was one stretch of highway, Interstate 59, between Birmingham and Chattanooga that struck me. It, you know, because there were memorial crosses every few miles in memory of people who had died. People who had died in car accidents. And we see this around here as well. But I was struck, I saw over a dozen of them in probably less than 100 miles. And it just gave me time to think and reflect and, and mourn a bit over probably teenagers and, and young people who succumbed to uh, bad weather, perhaps some hit by drunk drivers, and, and sad cases where parents and loved ones had set up memorial crosses along the way to remind us of peril. It is perilous in the wildlands. But the cross gives us hope. That even as we go through a perilous land, we're also reminded that there is great hope in a Savior who has gone before us through the wildlands, who has gone before us to to mete out the, the justice that you and I deserve, that you and I deserve before a holy God. That the cross reminds us both of the peril of our sin and the hope we have and a God who has provided everything we need through a righteous Savior who loved us, who died for us, who demonstrates for us God's justice, goodness, and mercy, which meet at the cross and unite us with the Lord our God, with whom we will worship and fellowship forever and ever. Let's put our hope and our trust in him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful that in a world of peril and a world of trial, you've given us great hope uh, that we have a Savior who has gone before us, who has met the worst of this world in the wildlands, who has emerged triumphant over sin and death. And I pray that you would give us grace in our journey to trust you, to remember your justice, your goodness, and mercy, and to live as a people who shine like lights in a dark world. May we live for the praise of your glory and grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.